gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast where i read the journals and we talk about the articles that i like or articles that you like so if you have an article that you think is important please send it in to info at gipearls.com this is episode 63 for the month of august 2023 a quick reminder that this is an independent podcast not sponsored by anyone so i really thank those of you who leave reviews on itunes and write nice things about the podcast the latest two who left reviews were Fit Focus Lab and Checklist 22. Whoever you are, thank you again for writing reviews. All right, let's crack open those journals, shall we? Two episodes ago, I reviewed a paper from Endoscopy where AI polyp detection system didn't help higher performing docs who used endocuff to increase their ADR, arguing that possible ceiling effect when it comes to adenoma detection range. Here is one more paper on AI polyp detection and the concept of increasing ADR with it. Title is Artificial Intelligence Aided Colonoscopy Does Not Increase Adenoma Detection Rate in Routine Clinical Practice, and it's published in the Red Journal. Many of the marketing materials for private practice adoption of AI-driven polyp detection, specifically geared towards private practice, state that you will increase your ADR, increase your fees, and if you own your own pathology, your pathology revenue will go up as well. And you quickly recoup the cost of purchasing the AI-driven system. Let's see if the strategy pays off in the real world. This was a retrospective review of thousands of procedures performed at a tertiary academic center before and after implementation of GI Genius. About 4,000 colonoscopies done by 30 GI docs. Primary outcome was ADR. And there was, surprise, surprise, no difference. So why is that? In the discussion, the authors point out that this was a real-world study and not a randomized clinical trial for a technology to which it is impossible to blind the participant. So as the authors put it, quote, we remove the constant scrutiny and evaluation. Human performance may be subject to change, end quote. In other words, Hawthorne effect. Total procedure time was a few minutes shorter for folks using AI, and this was what the authors think is the clue to the answer as why there was no difference. Quote, a clue to a possible explanation for this striking discrepancy with randomly controlled trial data is the diminished procedure time, potentially implying a sense of false confidence and over-reliance on AI technology, resulting in somewhat less scrupulous performance. End quote. When they looked at high performance, those with high ADR, the detection rate actually dropped from 35.5% down to 29.6%. Now that's unexpected, though for each individual endoscopist, there was no statistically significant change in ADR. So maybe the folks best with the skills stopped relying on their skills and felt more assured in the hands of our robot overlords. Okay, a few things I want to say. One is that AI technology probably will advance to a point where ADR will be better, not only by applying those cute little boxes, but also by stopping you and recommending you to go back and examine the segment of the colon that you might have whizzed by a little closer or something like that. Technology always gets better. But the other part is that ADR is not end all and be all when it comes to AI abilities. Another thing, serrated polyp detection rate was about half percent, which is way, way, way lower than I'm getting here in New Hampshire, and way below the already low, arguably, 
3% SDR that some experts recommended. So they don't have an explanation for this. And I'm a bit surprised since we think that serrated polyps is where AI could help us, meaning our eyes are not good at catching those. And everyone knows this. There's flat pesky polyps, occasionally have a nice mucus cap that helps you, but many times you miss them because you don't just don't see them. But the fact that the AI didn't work here to help you catch these flat, hard to see polyps is very, very surprising. I don't know, what do you guys think? Recently, I was asked to do an endoscopy on a patient who went to the dentist and the dentist told him that their teeth are wearing away from acid and they probably have reflux. Patient was a young woman with no symptoms or risk factors. On endoscopy, she had a long segment Barrett's. So clearly, risk factors for Barrett's are not very specific. We also know that the guidelines vary in terms of recommendations of who should get screened. ACG says you need to have GERD. AGA says, forget about GERD, but you need to have at least three risk factors. ASGE says family history or GERD with one risk factor, and the British say GERD with three risk factors. This next paper, titled Estimated Burden of Screening for Barrett's Esophagus in the United States, was published in July issue of Gastro, and it gives you the scale of the problem. What's the prevalence of Barrett's in the United States? About less than 2%, is that right? Well, this is a very short paper, and it basically compares how many people in the United States will have an upper endoscopy based on which guidelines you choose to follow. When applying the recommendations from different societies, the percent of population eligible for screening ranged from 8.4% based on the British guidelines up to 51.1% of the population if you use the AGA guidelines. If you only focus on adults who have GERD, which is what everyone is basically doing these days, this brings the number down to about 22%. And three out of four guidelines require GERD for Barrett's screening. Point being, AGA in the last guideline didn't include GERD. So we may be over-screening people in the US. Not a great use of resources. And again, the young woman in the example I gave in the beginning wouldn't have been screened anyway, not according to any of these guidelines. What do you folks do? Do you screen for Barrett's with one or two risk factors in the absence of GERD? All right, let's switch gears and talk about the liver a little bit. When it comes to beta blockade in secondary prophylaxis of variceal bleeds in patients with cirrhosis, natalol and propranolol were used for a long time, and carvedilol was recently added. But how much better is it? The next study out of Vienna, published in CGH, is titled Carvedilol achieves higher hemodynamic responses and lower rebleeding rates than propranolol in secondary prophylaxis. I mean, the title says it all, but let's go over the data a little bit, just for fun. It was a retrospective analysis of the data from patients who actually had hemodynamic testing before and after of their protal gradients at baseline the HUPG was over 12 and then measured again three months later while on therapy. 87 patients in all receiving non-selective beta blockade with propranolol or carvedilol plus variceal banding. And then looking and comparing the two treatments and carvedilol won for both lower rates of variceal rebleeding, liver-related deaths, and non-bleeding decompensation. So based on this, plus other papers, looks like carvedilol is a clear winner. And at least in the absence of an RCT, which I don't think is going to be done anytime soon. Don't you think? So assuming a patient can tolerate carvedilol, which by the way comes in two versions, twice a day and once a day, 
probably you should consider doing carvelol versus propanolol or neolol. 45 is the new 50. We all know it. We're all supposed to preach it. GI societies send their emissaries to the television and radio shows. The public is aware. Now, American College of Physicians is releasing their guidance statements. And that says, not so fast. In fact, 50 is the new 50. I'll read the guidance statements first and then give you a summary as to what ACP is thinking and a bit of a preview. I don't think they're crazy at all. Statement one, start screening for colorectal cancer in asymptomatic average risk adults at age 50. Statement two, consider not screening asymptomatic average risk adults between 45 and 49. Instead, discuss uncertainty around benefits and harms of screening in this population. Statement three, stop screening at 75 with a life expectancy of 10 years or less. For a talk to your patient and decide which screening test to do based on discussion of benefits, harms, costs, availability, frequency, and patient values and preferences. For B, here are the tests that are okay. Fecal immunochemical or high sensitivity guaiac fecal occult blood tests every two years, colonoscopy every 10 years, or flexig every 10 years plus a fit every two years as screening tests for colorectal cancer. For C, clinicians should not use stool DNA, CT colonography, capsule endoscopy, urine or serum screening tests for colorectal cancer. That's it. So as you can see, quite a difference from the USPSTF recommendations, as well as the societal recommendations. Let's take these one by one and maybe change your mind and think ACP is reasonable. Starting with screening at 50. So why 50? Why not 45? Their argument is that screening at 45 compared to 50 yielded more life years gained. That's true. And there were a few cancer deaths prevented, but there was also an increase in the number of colonoscopies, obviously, range of 161 to 784 per thousand screened, and colonoscopy complications such as cardiovascular gastrointestinal events, for example, serious bleeding, perforation, MIs, angina, etc. And again, this is all from modeling, not really real RCT data. And this is the reason for 50 rather than 45. They basically thought that modeling, as good as it is, assumes 100% participation, assumes a lot of other things, and modeling overall is not a bad idea. In this case, they just don't think that there's enough evidence to recommend for 45. And statement two is just basically discuss risks and benefits of screening between 45 and 50 and discuss the fact that their evidence is not so great. I don't think that's unreasonable. I think it's okay. Some people will choose to screen and some will not. Statement three, stop at 75. I think this point is fairly self-explanatory, having to do with life expectancy and comorbidities. Statement four really doesn't change anything. Patient values need to come into play. 4B, Cologuard is clearly missing from the tests that are okay. And 4C says don't use it. Now, why is that? We know that Cologuard and other stool DNA tests are highly sensitive, but not very specific. The ACP worries that there are too many unnecessary colonoscopies as a result of this test. I don't know if I agree with them on this point, but hey, here's their explanation. Our guidance statement considered costs, but USPSTF and ACS did not. Over a 10-year time frame, stool DNA tests would have cost equal to that of colonoscopy whereas other accurate stool tests have lower costs. Basically, they say, if you're going to use any test, use FIT over stool DNA, just from costs alone. And that's about it. The fact that ACP has a difference in opinion regarding 
when to start colon cancer screening probably speaks volumes regarding the level of evidence we have, meaning models. And that's all we have right now for screening colon cancer before the age of 50. So what do you think? Reasonable? Unreasonable? Are they crazy? I don't think so. There is a movement out there to recognize diminutive colon polyps as hyperplastic and either resect and discard them or even leave them alone. But a more pressing issue right now is the use of cold snares to pretty much resect anything you see that needs to come out. When it comes to polyps less than 3 millimeters, sometimes it's an ordeal to use a snare since they're so small and the tissue you get is so small and you keep looking for it in the trap forever. Why not use forceps? Well, there's a belief that removing them with forceps, you end up not completely resecting them and defeating the whole purpose of removing them. This next paper titled Cold Snare versus Cold Forceps Polypectomy for Endoscopic Resection of Diminutive Polyps, Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials, pretty much settles the question for us. Published in GIE, it is an analysis of nine studies with over a thousand patients looking at small polyps less than three millimeters and looking at the rate of complete resection. Keep in mind that our societies, in their great wisdom, said that you should use a snare always unless it's technically difficult to use a snare, whatever that means. Here, the rate of complete resection was significantly higher for cold snare polypectomy group when looking at polyps 5 millimeters or less, but when you looked at only polyps 3 millimeters or less, turns out there was no significant difference. What's more interesting is the fact that even for these small polyps, less than 5 millimeters, the rate of complete resection was 94.4%, meaning that 1 in 20 of these polyps is still incompletely resected, even with a cold snare. The rates for 3mm polyps or less were 96.3% for cold snare and 97% for cold forceps. And it did not matter if you used standard forceps or jumbo. Keep in mind that this is for 3mm or less polyps. Study found no difference in polypectomy time, and this is good, even though I do think that all depends on how you count polypectomy time. Some texts give you the snare to start feeding through while they put on the trap. Other texts put the trap on first, and at least in my experience, forceps are way, way faster. Additional point brought up by the paper was that the rate of failure of retrieval of resected polyps was significantly higher for the cold snare polypectomy group, and I'm sure we all have encountered this situation. The amount of tissue is just too small and you end up chasing it down, looking for it, and sometimes you have to stop and give up looking for it. Another important question raised by the authors of the paper, how important is it to completely remove these diminutive polyps? And I don't think this question has been settled yet. So I think the conclusion of the paper is correct. It's okay to use cold forceps for diminutive colon polyps. In locations for some reason, you cannot get a 5mm polyp or smaller with a snare. But for polyps less than 3mm, it's okay to go ahead and use forceps. The authors, of course, stopped short of recommending of going against the guidelines and recommended an RCT. And I will be holding my breath. And that's all I have for you today. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls. Let's summarize things we talked about today. We started again with AI and so that it does not increase adenoma detection rate in routine clinical practice, at least in some settings. Then we talked about the fact that if you apply screening guidelines for Barrett's esophagus, in the United States, you end up screening almost everybody, depending on which guideline you use. Then we talked about a paper that showed that carvedilol is probably better than other beta blockers when it comes to secondary prophylaxis of variceal bleeds and cirrhosis. 
And then the hot topic was the new ACP guidelines for colon cancer screening. 45 may not be a new 50. 50 is the new 50. Hmm. Then I talked about a paper that discussed cold snare versus cold forceps for removing tiny polyps, and it seemed to be there is no difference between the two, which is very reassuring. And that's all. If you have any papers you want me to read, please send them to info at gipearls.com. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. That's pretty much the only way I know that you're listening to this thing. Until next time, bye-bye.